Well, we're in 1 John 5 this morning. If you have your Bible, I would encourage you to meet me there. We believe that when we open the Scriptures, we actually get to hear the very voice of God. We believe that the Bible is God's Word to us, written, given to us out of love. And so what we do is we continue to worship God, not just through our singing and other elements, but also as we hear a word from the Lord. I think I've shared this with you before. When I first started in pastoral ministry, I was a pastor in the area of college and mission. So those were kind of my two primary uh, emphases. And I was leading a college ministry at a church that was only a mile from the university, which is really helpful if you're, you know, you're trying to build a college ministry. So we had a lot of students, students who would even ride their bike there. And, and uh, I love working with college students. I, I, I uh, I didn't always like the hours they kept. I would sometimes, I remember hitting up a student or two and saying, hey, let's, let's hang out together. Let's uh, just spend some time together. And I remember more than once hearing, oh, that'd be great. How about tomorrow night around 11? I thought, 11 o'clock? Like, I'm going to be in bed at 11. You, you can come and hang out in my kitchen if you want, but I'm not going to be up. Um, I love working with college students. What I really like is the, the depth of the questions they ask. Um, during that time, I was asked questions about theology and ministry and philosophy and church history, but there was one subject, there was one topic that was always uh, the, the main or tended to be the main focus of our discussions, and that was, what would you guess, relationships. In fact, if there was one question that dwarfed every other question that I ever got in working with college students, it was this, how do I find the one? And if a person was in a relationship, it was more like this, how do I know if he's the one? How do I know uh, if she's the one? This would allow me to kind of launch into a a theology of God's will, uh, so to speak. And what I would say is, look, your job is not to find the mysterious one. Think more of a backyard uh, than a a bullseye. In other words, there's freedom in the backyard. It does have some fences, uh, but there's freedom there. And so what your responsibility is to find the one who fits the description that God says a believer ought to marry. And so I said, find someone who, who is a true believer. Find someone not just who says he's a believer or says she's a believer, but someone who really bears the marks of a true Christian. Now, of course, that sparks a, a question, doesn't it? begs a question. What are the marks of a true Christian? And this is the question we'll be answering this morning from the text as we continue uh, in our series in 1 John called As Children of God. So this morning, uh, four marks of a true Christian. And uh, just let me read the entire uh, shorter section that we're in, 1 John 5, 1 through 5. Uh, here reads the word of the Lord. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who uh, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So we only have one more week left in this letter next week, and uh, since some of you are, are new to us, let me just uh, kind of review a little bit, give you a little bit of background. Somewhere toward the end of the first century, in the, probably the mid-90s, uh, there was an old man uh, with a long gray beard who was hunched over because of 
years of travel, years of walking on, uh, on foot, uh, years of fishing. Um, this is a guy who uh, was actually one of the closest friends of Jesus. He was, he was invited into things to experience and to see things that virtually no one else, except for maybe two or three or four other people, were able to experience. I'm talking about, for example, the transfiguration of Jesus. This was one who was in Jesus' inner circle. This is the one who actually described himself as the one that Jesus loved. Um, and here he is toward the end of his life. It's his uh, twilight years, and um, he's living in the city of Ephesus, which was a bustling ancient city, a uh, coastal city that uh, filled with culture and uh, philosophy and business and trade and religion. And uh, throughout and in this city of Ephesus, there were these little churches, house churches. Um, and they were sometimes 20 people strong, 30 people strong. They would sometimes meet uh, in the homes of, of rich uh, believers. Uh, but, these, but these early Christians were under attack. They were under attack from inside by those who were saying, oh, we received a special knowledge from God. Uh, we received some special information from God. And, and so they would actually lead these Christians astray by false teaching. Uh, they were also under attack from outside of the church um, by those who just could not stand the idea of a sort of monotheistic community in a day and age and in a culture where there were all kinds of small g gods, false gods everywhere, those who believed in a one true God, and in particular that Jesus Christ, the one crucified, was that Messiah, the Son of God, were uh, subjected to persecution. And so in an effort to encourage these believers, and not, not to discourage them, not to increase their doubt, but to give them some real uh, uh, examples of what it means to be a believer, uh, John writes and he gives these four marks of a true Christian. Now the first one is evident in the first verse of chapter 5. In the last part of this section, verses 1a and verse 5, um, John says, as I just read, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and you skip down to verse 5, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So here's the first mark of a true Christian. A true Christian is trusting in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and His or her only Savior. Now, I, I say that, and you may think, well, that's obvious, but sadly, it's not really that obvious or a given anymore. I saw an article just this last week, Christianity Today, which said that 57% of professing Christians do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So that's, that's over half of the people who say they belong to Christ, who identify themselves as Christians, they don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Now notice I said, is trusting in the present tense in Jesus as the Son of God and His or her own only Savior. John actually uses the present tense in verse 1. It's what we call a, it's a present active participle. A participle for you grammarians is the word that ends in ing. So we could translate that everyone who is believing. Everyone who is believing. See, a Christian is not someone who simply repents and believes once and then just sort of checks it off and says, you know, now I'm a Christian. The Christian life is one of continually repenting and believing. Now, this is not to diminish the new birth. We talked about the new birth last week and a few weeks ago, this, this one-time supernatural event whereby God makes alive someone who's spiritually dead. So, not diminishing the new birth, but 
The lifelong posture of the Christian is one of repentance and faith. Now, what's this, what this means is, just because you prayed a prayer once and you marked it down in your Bible, doesn't mean anything. If this moment, you're not believing on Jesus as the Son of God and your only Savior. You may have walked down an aisle, doesn't mean anything. You may have filled out a salvation card at camp. You may have uh, knelt down with your mom or dad uh, one evening and prayed a prayer. You could have done all of those things, any or all of those things, and not truly turned from your sin and believed in Jesus Christ. What matters right now is not what you did, but in whom are you trusting right now at this very moment? The Apostle Paul talks about the importance of believing over, uh, John rather, over and over in his letters, even brackets off this section of his letter by emphasizing faith as the, the central critical element of the Christian life. He says in verse 1, in verse 1 it's the true mark, and then he wraps up the section with, uh, again, in verses 4 and 5, anyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and how is the world overcome? By our faith, he says. And just so there's absolutely no mistaking it, he says in verse 5, who is it that overcomes? It's the one who is believing. Now, again, do, please don't misunderstand me. I believe that when we put our trust in Christ, we're made alive in Christ. You know, we enabled God by His Spirit enables us to believe, and we never, ever can lose that salvation. But it's not something we just say we did, and then we just rest in our laurels or rest in some sort of past prayer. Again, the posture of the Christian is one of continual repentance and belief. Faith is the central element of the Christian life. This is the biblical reality that, that sparked the Protestant Reformation. We are saved by faith alone. We're not saved by our works. We're not saved, as I've heard so many times over the years, uh, by doing more good than bad. That doesn't save anyone. There's nothing good that we can do to earn our salvation it's purely a matter of believing, trusting in what's already been done. Namely, verses 1 and 5, believing that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God, which necessarily means receiving Him for what He is. A King and our King. A Savior, but also our Savior. The mediator between God and us. The great 19th century German theologian C.F.W. Walther writes, Faith is not merely thinking, I believe. Your whole heart must be seized by the gospel and come to rest in it. When that happens, you are transformed and cannot help but love and serve God. And this is really, really the point of this section that we're in this morning. Now, not everybody actually receives Jesus for who He is. Many, or we could actually say if we, we really take seriously the words of Jesus, most, most people will not receive Jesus. They will not truly believe. There are those, Jesus himself says, who will say, and they'll say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? And Jesus will say, depart from me, you evildoer, I never knew you. Now, what do we see? They're, what are they relying in? Didn't we do all these things in your name? They're trusting in what they've accomplished. They're trusting in their own works. There are those who say they believe, even claim Christ as Lord, but they've never received Christ as who He is. Now, when I say that, 
you, you may be inclined to think or, or wonder, you know, is my faith good enough? And I can tell you uh, from experience, when I was a teenager, I, I probably prayed the sinner's prayer a hundred times. And there were so many times when I did something mean to my sister, or I had a horrible thought or a selfish uh, desire, whatever, that I was down that same evening and, and praying again. Well, I can't possibly be a Christian and do these things or think these things. Um, well, the most important thing about our faith is not the strength of our faith, but the object of our faith, Christ himself. And you're going to have moments in your life, and, and, and I hope this is not the case, maybe this is the way it is for you right now, you'll have moments in your life when you just don't feel the closeness of God. Moments in your life when you just don't feel God's presence or God's blessing or you feel like your prayers don't get beyond the ceiling. I've certainly had seasons in my life like that. Now, you may, by contrast, you may have times, you will have times in your life when you feel an unusual closeness to God and your faith feels vibrant and real and the presence of God is for you, as the psalmist says, your good. You, you, you can sense the presence of God and praise God for those times. We're going to have both moments in our life and, and everything in between, but what matters most, again, is, is the object of our faith, not how strong our faith feels at the moment. Are we trusting in Jesus Christ and His finished work? Now, here's some comforting news for you. If you have put your trust in Christ, your faith will grow over time. The Holy Spirit will, will see to it. The Holy Spirit will continue to mold and shape you into the image of God's Son. It's part of God's work of sanctification is actually strengthening uh, your faith. It's kind of like uh, being on an up escalator. Even if you're standing still, you're, you're moving up. And, and even if you're walking down slowly, what's happening? You're still moving up. Now, this is not to diminish, again, the importance of the spiritual disciplines, but if you are in Christ, you've been made alive by the Spirit of God, your faith will grow over time. Now, it may be in spurts. You know, you may have a spurt where you just experience rapid growth and a real deepening of your faith. And you may have seasons where you feel like you're in a real spiritual wasteland. But over the long haul, your faith will grow because God will see to it. So John says very clearly in verse 1, a true Christian is trusting in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and His or her only Savior. That's, that's one mark of a true believer. Now let's look at the next mark. The last part of verse uh, 1, John says, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of the Father. So John's kind of further explaining, he's, making, he's, he's elaborating on the case that he's built through what we would call the first four chapters of this letter. Whoever loves God has been born of God and knows God. Now, there are actually two marks in here, but let's just take them one at a time. Uh, here's the second mark. A true Christian loves God the Father. To say it more simply, a mark of a true Christian is an abiding love for God the Father. Now, why is that a mark? Well, when we are made alive in Christ, God enables us to see Him in a different way. In other words, God enables us to see Him as He truly is, holy and majestic and glorious and merciful and kind and loving. And when we see God as He truly is, when we're made enabled to see God as He truly is, He then becomes the object of our greatest affection. Uh, at a previous church I, I served, I, I must have talked a lot about the 
indicatives and the imperatives of the Scriptures. Because I had this one lady who, who actually made me a sign, and it was on a, a, I don't know, wooden post, if you will. It was a beautifully handmade sign. And it had, uh, at the top, it looked kind of like a street sign. At the top, it had on one side, indicative. And on the other side of that sign, it said, imperative. And this lady said to me, I'm going to bring this sign. I'm going to make more like it. And then whenever you talk about an indicative, we're going to hold up the sign. And when you talk about imperative, we're going to hold up the sign. Now, she never did that, thankfully, but she gave me the sign. I, I lost it somehow in one of our moves. But it was, a, again, it was a very beautifully, uh, you know, done thing. And, uh, and, and the point that she was making was, look, we, we want you to know we're tracking with you. We understand what you're talking about when you, when you differentiate between the indicatives and the imperatives. The indicatives, they just indicate what's been done. So everything in the Bible that tells us what God has done for us in Christ is, is an indicative. The imperatives, they just tell us what to do. Everything that says do this and don't do that and refrain from this and flee from that, everything that tells us what we ought to do and ought not to do, those are imperatives. And the reason that I you know, continue to talk about that is because without the indicatives, what God has done for us in Christ, there's no way to do the imperatives. As someone has said, imperatives minus indicatives are impossibilities. They can't be done. Now, let me say it another way for you. those of you wondering, what in the world is this guy talking about? Um, the only way we will ever be able to forgive those who've hurt us is as we understand and revel in how much we've been forgiven by God. And when we understand how much we've been forgiven, we actually long to forgive. Remember what Jesus said? He who is forgiven much forgives much. The one who understands what we've been forgiven, then it becomes our desire to forgive. And this is why when we find the Scriptures, almost every time there's a command to forgive, almost every time, not every time, but almost, it is accompanied by either a statement or a story, a parable, of the forgiveness that we have received by God in Christ. Because what, what God is saying is, by doing that, is He's saying, yeah, I'm telling you to forgive. I'm commanding you to forgive. It's not an option it's not something you can, it's not a matter of Christian liberty. You must forgive. But he said, let me remind you of where you were when I forgave you. Let me remind you of what you were doing and how you have sinned against me when I forgave you. Now, the same is true for love. When we're commanded to love God, which Jesus says is the greatest command, it is in the context, typically, of the love of God that we have been shown. The only way to love God is to experience, or to use John's language, to know the love of God that He has for us. So that's the only way we can love God, is to understand the love that God has for us. What did John say in the last section we looked at? God is love. And He has shown His love for us in sending His Son, last section, to be the propitiation, the satisfaction of God's wrath that we rightly deserve. While we were vicious God-haters, He sent His Son to die for us. He overwhelmed us with His love, enabled us to have faith, and thus transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of His beloved Son. And that was all done out of love for us. If you are in Christ this morning, you are forgiven all your past sins, your present sins, your future sins, and you are loved. 
The reason that God, that love for God is a mark of the Christian is because those who have been shown the redeeming love of God, those who have experienced the love of God in Christ and known that love will necessarily love God in return. Their hearts will explode in love and worship. The Apostle Paul would say in Romans, it's the only reasonable response for somebody who has been loved in that way. So there's another mark of the Christian. Verse 1b, John says, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So here's so love for the Father, and here's the third mark. A true Christian loves other Christians. So whoever loves the Father loves whoever who has been born of the Father. In other words, other Christians. This has been a recurring theme in this letter. As I mentioned to you last week, it, it's, it comes up so often that you know, when I get into my studies and I'm wrestling with the language and the text, it's like I've already seen this like a dozen times. This is what John says over and over. It's a recurring theme. If we are truly born of God, we've been made alive in Christ, we will love others who are born of God, that is, other Christians. This Again, this is a mark of a true believer, someone who loves other Christians. And continuing with that indicative imperative theme, we are called to love others. How? As God in Christ has loved us. Well, how has God loved us? Well, we, again, uh, we talked about this last week, certainly in an emotive way. God delights in us. He treasures us. He enjoys us. And we're called to love others in a way that involves and includes feelings. Now, it's not all feelings. I mean, it's definitely, you know, there's a commitment, there's a choice, there's a covenant. It's all of those things, but it definitely involves feelings. But how do we do that? Well, it takes the Spirit-enabled ability to treasure in another person what makes them different than you. In other words, we're all, every single human being from before birth, Uh, reflects the image of God, and we reflect the image of God in different and unique ways based on the way God has wired us and created us. So one of the ways that we learn to love other people is by treasuring or valuing what it is that makes them different, the way that they reflect God's glory in a way that we, differently than us. Now this takes a lot of work, doesn't it? Because how do we typically feel about someone who has different characteristics or strengths and weaknesses than we do. We're annoyed by that. Why don't they do it the way I do it? Why don't they think the way that I think? Why don't they handle situations the way that I handle situations? So again, it's a spirit-enabled ability to actually treasure what makes one another different. And it starts, if you're married, that's where it starts. So, you, 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 so we have to learn, and, and by the Spirit and through prayer, to actually treasure and devalue what it is that makes our spouse different. So Janine and I have been married 28 years, and, and by God's grace, we have an amazing marriage and, and deep friendship, but we have very different personalities. That's an understatement. And we handle things very differently. And there, I, I was reminded of this multiple times just this last week. You know, I'm, try, I'm getting ready to pull out onto 72. I'm getting ready, I'm, I'm getting ready to go left. And Janine said to me, which she said to me probably a thousand times over our marriage, why don't you just go right and then make a U-turn at the next right, the next stoplight. In other words, why try to pull out into a busy street and go left, just go right? I think my thought was, why would I ever go right to go left? It just doesn't make any sense to me. Um, there, there are things that we're learning still about each other, learning to value. 
And I have to value that. She doesn't want to sit there forever while I try to navigate or speed out into traffic. Um, she wants to remain safe. And those are good things. So you, you, we learn to value what it is. And I have more annoying things about me by far uh, than Janine does, I'm sure. Um, I'm, she wonders every time we go to crumble cookie, we get a hot cookie out of the oven, why I have to speed home and put it in the refrigerator before I'll eat it. But I don't like hot cookies. I like my cookies chilled. Now, that's just a silly thing. But, but my point is, you look, at all your, you look at your relationship. I sometimes wonder, almost every week, why would we go to Sam's Club if we don't need to buy anything? Like, I don't understand that. But we, we go, we walk around, you know, we, we look at stuff. So my point is, you know, you, in order to really love someone, we have to learn to treasure, to value what it is that makes us different. And learning to love Christian siblings, our, our brothers and sisters in Christ, is no different. It demands that we learn to value what it is that makes each person different. That's one way we love one another. Well, how else do we love in a way that God has loved us? Well, we love one another in a pursuing way. What does John say in the last section? We love, why? Because he first loved us. Jesus would say in John's gospel, the one who wrote the gospel uh, before these two letters, um, before, uh, he would say, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. So, uh, and, and the third letter of John. Um, Jesus pursues us. He goes after us. He sets us on a mission and he calls us friends. So, if we're going to love other people as God has loved us, it means we pursue one another. And we have people in this church who are amazing at this. We have people who are very active in pursuing one another. Um, and, and I've been so encouraged by the way that they pursued one another and pursued me. We have people who are very active in chasing after other people texting them, reaching out to them. Can we meet? Uh, do you want to come over? Do you want to hang out? Do you want to get dinner? Do you want to grab coffee? Whatever it is. We have people who are amazing at that. Um, but as you, know, you might expect in a church this size, we also have people who are, who are not doing this at all, not pursuing one another for the sake of relationship. Well, if love demands self-sacrifice, if I'm called to, to love uh, one another sacrificially and in a self-giving way, it certainly means that I have to be willing to sacrifice my time, right? To, to give up some of my time to actually pursue others. And I know, how, I know how hard this is. I know how easy it is to get, of course, caught up in our own families and in our own work schedules and in our own hobbies or things that we love. It takes work to pursue others in relationship. It's not easy to love others. And, and it does actually involve making ourselves vulnerable, doesn't it? Loving one another means being vulnerable. When we love, we put ourselves out there to be hurt, uh, to be betrayed. We, we put ourselves out there in such a way that the love may not be reciprocated. We, we, we pursue somebody and they may reject us, they may spurn our efforts, and yet it's that love and the honesty and that surrendering of power, so to speak, the willingness to sacrifice and be vulnerable for others that paves the way for meaningful relationships and, according to John, makes us overcomers of the world, which I take to mean the world's system of belief, which is centered on autonomy and independence and self-reliance. But all of that leads to loneliness and emptiness. 
And so one mark of a true Christian is, do we love other believers? Now, there's a, there's a final mark, verses 2 and 3. Let me just read those again. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Now, what an odd statement of verse 3 is. This is the love of God that we keep His commandments. In a bit of a confusing way, especially in the original language, John's simply saying to love God is to obey God. To love God is to obey God. So here's our final mark this morning. A true Christian obeys God out of love. To say it another way, genuine affection for God will lead to obedience to God. And where there is no obedience to God, there is no genuine affection for God. Now, I feel like I have to say this. I've built a ministry reputation on preaching grace. I believe that the whole story of the Bible is a story of grace. God's one-way love for us. God, God's plan uh, to redeem a sin-cursed and helpless world. I believe that preaching Christ is preaching grace. I believe that grace is the only thing that will change a hard heart. I believe that grace is the only thing that will motivate someone to love and obey God. I believe that grace changes everything. In fact, I've ordered my house, I've arranged the way that I lead my home in such a way that grace prevails. Uh, in his book, uh, Grace and Practice, Dr. Paul Zoll wrote this beautiful uh, statement that I could have easily written, because in many ways it describes my own life in ministry. He says this, The message of God's, one, uh, God's grace, or one-way love, has captivated me for as long as I can remember. It saved my life during my early 20s. This is Paul's all writing, but this is true of me as well. Restored my marriage in my middle 20s, then created in me a father loved by my children. Grace remade my ministry and made possible my contact with sufferers as well as prodigals. The message of grace has also proven to be provocative, especially in relation to other Christians. Sometimes I have been accused of being long on grace but short on law. Now again, these are Paul Zoll's word, Harvard-educated, longtime pastor and author. But all of that is true of me. And the people that I watch and the people that I listen to and the people that I read, they too are lovers of and might even say grace addicts as well. But having said all that, having said all that, emphasizing grace does not mean downplaying the need for obedience. In fact, is it not Paul, the apostle himself, who says it's grace, in the book of Titus, that taught us to renounce ungodliness. So grace does not mean downplaying the importance of obedience, as many do. Throughout his letter, John makes it clear that obedience to love, out of love for God, is a distinguishing mark of a true Christian. Now, I think it does beg a question, does God love us regardless of what we do? Does God love Christians even when they obey? I tell my kids on a regular basis, there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. Is that true? 
Well, the answer is yes. It's an emphatic yes. It's absolutely true that God loves us despite our obedience. He loved us when we were His enemies, as we've said. In fact, what makes God's love so incredible and His grace so amazing is that He demonstrated His love toward us by sending His Son while we were yet sinners. So yes, God loves His children regardless of what they do. But it's also fair and right to say that if a disciple of Christ is to remain in God's love, that individual must obey Him. Not in order to continually secure God's love, but as verification, we might say, that a person claiming to be God's child is actually God's child. Because you know as well as I do, where we live and the culture we live in, just about everybody calls himself or herself a Christian. But not everybody is involved in a believing community, and not everybody has a life that's patterned by or in which obedience to God is consistent. And John seems to say here that love for others is the means by which we experience the love of God. There's, there's this kind of unbreakable chain in John's letter that goes from chapter 2 to chapter 3 to chapter 4 on to chapter 5. And it's this, love for God, so genuine love for God, demonstrates genuine love for His Son. So you love God, you love the Son. And love for the Son is confirmed by obedience, namely our love for one another. And this he says, is the gateway to the experience, of, the experience of God's love and the subsequent joy of God. It's kind of like this. If one of my, and I use my sons as examples all the time, so let me use one of my daughters. If one of my daughters, um, and I tell my, my kids all the time, I tell them I love them, I show affection for them, I hug them and I kiss them and I let them know that I love them. I tell them all the time, there's nothing you can do that's going to make me stop loving you. Um, and they, they know that, I think, um, but they know that I love them. But if one of my daughters, for example, uh, decides that she's going to rebel against me and sort of give me an emotional stiff arm and reject my teaching and ignore me and keep her distance from me, it doesn't mean that my love for her has changed, but certainly her experience of my love is going to be different. It's going to be different if she, said, if she turns her back on me, wants nothing to do with me, rejects me, you know, spurns my instruction. The way that she experiences my love will be different. In fact, we might even say that her experience of my love will diminish drastically. Though in reality, my love has not changed, the way she experiences my love will change. And the Puritans have written a lot about this and some really beautiful stuff, um, but what they would say is that when we sin against God, when we rebel against God, God's love for us doesn't. He doesn't take His love away, but certainly our experience of that love changes. So what about this statement in verse 3b, His commands are not burdensome? Well, certainly John is not saying that it's easy to obey God's commands, nor is he saying that God's commands sort of go along with the cultural norms. God's commands, in fact, fly in the face of the world's philosophies and the world's ethos, particularly in areas like relationships, marriage, sexual ethics, gender, money, pleasure. This is why John would say earlier that you cannot love the world and love God. 
He's not talking about loving the physical creation. He's talking about the world system of belief. You can't embrace the way the world believes, the world's philosophies and the world's ethos, and then still uh, walk and follow, follow with God. So John's not saying when he says his, God's commands are not burdensome that, hey, this is not going to be, this is going to be no problem for you, for you. It's going to be easy for you. What he's saying is God's commands are for our good. They're for our good. When we think of God's commands, it's easy to view those commands as the very things that hinder our joy. Right? Oh, I can't do this, and I can't do that, or I must do this, or I must do that, or you've got to refrain from that, I've got to flee from that, I've got to pursue that. These are all imperatives. These are real imperatives that we're called to obey. So sometimes we think that God's commands, what they do is they sort of steal away our joy. But John says that it is by obedience to God's commands that we actually overcome the world, which again means the emptiness, the vanity, the futility, the loneliness, the hopelessness of the world's way of believing. So it is by our obedience that we experience deep and lasting joy. And, and going back to those categories I, I just mentioned, relationships. Relationships that are lived according to God's blueprint and God's design are the only lifelong fulfilling relationships. Uh, sexual ethics, you know, the sexual relationships, gender, money, pleasure, marriage, all of these things, when these things are enjoyed uh, the way that God has called us to enjoy them, uh, then we experience uh, the fullness of joy. Jesus, in fact, would say in John's gospel that his own obedience to the Father is the ground of his joy. Jesus said that. And he promises that those who obey him will experience that same joy. So even though love is a command, and it's not a suggestion, it's a command that we love one another, it's not meant to hinder our joy, but but to cause our joy to explode in the fullness that comes with walking closely with God and living in loving relationships with one another. And if you've ever been, and I'm sure you have, in a deep, genuine, life-giving friendship with another believer, you know just how joy-infusing that is. If you, again, and I know you have, if you've had brothers and sisters in Christ that, that you live with with masks off, they know your good and bad, and they know your weaknesses and your strengths, and they know your sin tendencies, and they know the areas that you're strong. They know all of that about you. If you've been in that sort of relationship, you know how life-giving it is. You know how uh, joy-infusing it can be. This is by God's design, that when we love one another, we would experience that sort of joy. So these, John says, are the marks of a true Christian. Love for God, the Father, love for other believers, obedience marked by love, and all of that is anchored in and bracketed off by faith in Jesus Christ. Our obedience is moved by love for God, enabled by the Spirit, fueled by the gospel, and empowered by faith. So in, in, just as I wrap up, let me go back and finish that initial uh, illustration that I gave. So someone comes to me and they say, you know, I, how do I know if he's the one? How do I know if She's the one. Here's what I say. Again, there's freedom. If it's a woman, I can say he can be tall or short. He can be uh, you know, black or white. He can be handsome or I don't know, rugged. Um, he can be any number of things, you know, rich or poor. He can be all of those things. 
That doesn't matter. Any of those things, anybody who, who fits the one can be any of those things. But in staying in the fence and being obedient to God, he must be someone who loves God. He must be somebody, someone who loves other believers. He must be someone who is obeying God and someone who is marked by his faith in Jesus Christ. And so, to our students, you're looking for someone, you wouldn't find the one or whatever it is. Yeah, it can be, it can be any, all kinds of different looks and, and whatever, but it's got to be somebody who loves God, someone who really bears the marks of a genuine Christian, loves God, loves the people of God, is, is obedient to God, and has a life of faith. And, and again, all of these things, these, these abilities to obey, the ability to love, it's all, a, it's all a result of, as John says over and over, being born from above, which is the supreme act of God's love, sending His Son to, be, to, to pay the penalty for our sin, to bear the very wrath of God, so that as we believe, we are made alive in Christ. Uh, let's pray.